Medieval Extras, our premium content site, goes live on the 20th of May. Please subscribe to our podcast catalog so you won't miss the upcoming announcement of our awesome future projects. There is a stinking, clamorous atmosphere hanging over the town here, itself heaving with life, oozing out of all wooden and stone structures. Every road is overrun by a mob of peasants making their way in and out of town, merchants dragging their loaded carts down the dirty tracks, and blacksmiths carrying newly tempered hammers and axes to the marketplace. Dung and waste materials are piled high on every side. Sanitation is poor. Ditches in the ground carry grimy water to the nearby streams. But the settlement is budding with hard work and activity. Everyone here has a part to play. The Shire Reeve, calling for new plates to stock the Lord's house and paying with a pouch of silver pennies. The leather worker, molding and shaping a new saddle for his best client. The watchman, keeping their eyes peeled for petty thieves and bandits. This is Birmingham in the English Midlands around the turn of the 9th century AD. Nowadays, it is better known for Cadbury World and its jewelry industry. But 1,200 years ago, it was a rapidly expanding commercial center in the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia. Surrounded on all sides by the estates of wealthy noblemen, Birmingham was a key source for crafts, tools, weapons, troops, food, clothing, and far more than just the basic necessities. It was just one town in the Mercian King's main supply network. But above all, it brought into one place every functioning pillar and facet of the Anglo-Saxon feudal system. No one is better known for the feudal system than the 11th century Normans. But if you thought they were some pioneering inventors of the medieval social order, you'd be wrong. Feudalistic society had existed in numerous forms for centuries. It is believed that Britannia fell into a primarily feudal nation shortly after the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons. For those who aren't familiar with the feudal order, which came to be the dominant governing arrangement throughout the Middle Ages, it very much resembled a class ranking system with multiple platforms of nationals serving those on the platform above them. From the dirtiest, most worthless slaves on the bottom platform to the wealthiest, most elite nobles on the monarch's court, everyone was supposed to swear allegiance to their king. Outwardly, the Anglo-Saxon organization appeared very simple, with society being divided into three sectors. At the top was the king, a figure of absolute power who had control over everyone in his domain except church members and could raise an army, increase taxes, make announcements, and put someone on trial anytime he liked, so long as he had the support of his lords and barons. In his court, he surrounded himself with the ultimate money men in the land, the eldermen, or simply earls. Compared to the ordinary farmer or craftsman, they were loaded with cash and they owned vast estates consisting of manors, burrs, and sometimes protoform castles. No one messed with the earls, on pain of death or worse. Though the earls did have their own distinct class, they fell into the wider division of society known as thanes. 
The term is actually pretty vague. One thane could be barely scraping middle class, while another could qualify as a minor king. The rich thanes love to hunt boar and deer in their private forests, build expensive mansions, and embellish their friends with exquisite gifts. They owned manor houses at the centers of their estates, living in a large rectangular hall with outlying buildings for various practical purposes. If you could afford it, you'd have a tile roof constructed, but thatched roofs were the norm. Lavish feasts, expensive pieces of art, and exorbitant ornaments were all icons of a lord's wealth. Below the thanes were churls, the largest class in the Anglo-Saxon feudal system. The name is also quite vague. All it really means is a freeman, someone who, in theory, has mobility, but in most practical cases, didn't. They represented everyone from farmers to minor nobles. In fact, it was possible for a churl to become a thane, as long as he had at least five hides of land and a certain number of physical structures. Hell, a churl could even be richer than a thane in some cases. Many churls lived relatively comfortable lives and farmed their local lord's land for food. A core part of Anglo-Saxon life was warfare, and for that reason, every churl was obliged to participate in the feared, a local levy consisting of poorly trained soldiers, usually with no armor and only hammers, spears, and axes for weapons. The sovereign could order the raising of a feard any time it was necessary to defend the land. Finally, at the very dumping ground of Anglo-Saxon society were the thralls, the early medieval equivalent of slaves. It is believed that about 10% of England's population of approximately a million people were officially enslaved during Anglo-Saxon times. Some slaves lived more comfortable lives than others. While one slave might be forced to farm his lord's land, another slave could be made to do heavy labor, like mining or helping build a church. But don't be mistaken, this doesn't mean that all the large structures in early medieval England were built exclusively by slaves, as the common misconception suggests. Thralls had no freedom, of course, and barely owned a thing. Their houses, the land they lived on, even their tools and clothes belonged to the churls or thanes who employed them. They helped farm the land, and in return, the lord would protect them from local bandits. Criminal freemen could be moved down to the level of a slave, while slaves could move up to the rank of a lower freeman. Early Anglo-Saxon feudalism resembled the governing systems of the Germanic tribes of their homelands, and they would pass this age-old arrangement down through the centuries to the Norman kings when they took England in 1066, and the Plantagenet dynasty for 300 more years and beyond. Over time, the feudal system would cement itself in Europe as a powerful and near-unbreakable social order. 